Hey friends, in case you're wondering, we're going to do the announcement at the end of this uh, talk because we want to give due honour to his word. So stay tuned, it's a great passage. I think uh, we're at a time now we're all fixated on numbers and certainly COVID has certainly stimulated everyone's interest in mathematical formulas, projections, percentages. Um, and numbers carry their own meaning and significance, do they not? I mean, there's there's good there's dep- good numbers and there's depressing numbers. Like, you know, you think about in Australia, 1,100 people die in uh, in car crashes every year. I think that's a lot of people, or worse than that. I think it's about 3,000 people take their life in Australia every year. Wow, that's tragic. But there is good news as well, like uh, good numbers, like uh, 300,000 babies are born every year in Australia. Wow, that's like the municipality of Blackdown that that uh, I presently live in, uh, or used to live in, rather. Uh, and then there's um, the way in which Luke records in Acts the growing number of people who are born again. And he actually kind of goes and, and sort of numbers them, at least for a season. You know, you get the original 11 with Judas out of the picture, then 12, then 120, then 3,000, then 5,000. Whoa, it's just getting bigger and bigger. But it's very easy to forget that behind every number is a precious person. And each precious person has a unique story. And I think the vision that Paul gets on his second missionary journey kind of reminds you of the significance of that. Let's pick it up in chapter 16, verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, the Spirit of Jesus has we're told, stop them, the, the, the missionary troop, from actually going into Bithynia and sort of sections of, uh, of Turkey. And this vision now is directing them towards Europe, uh, in this particular case, Macedonia and northern Greece. And this will be now the first time the gospel is now taken into the, heart, into, the, into the edges of Europe. And from here, the world will be one for Jesus. Missionaries will go to Africa, Asia, North and South America, um, the Pacific, and little old Australia. Uh, did you notice though the content of the vision? That's what particularly got my attention. There's a Macedonian man standing and begging, come over to Macedonia and help us, help us. And why I like it is it's an image worth keeping in mind because, uh, you know, as we think about MBM's goals for the future, uh, you know, or rather these 10 years that we're in from 2015 to 2025, one of those goals is God desired outcomes is to see a thousand people say yes to Jesus. That's a good outcome. That's a good desire. But this vision personalizes that desire. Uh, it reminds us that mission is about people, not numbers, and to make sure you don't stay at the numbers. Because why? Because behind every number is a person, a precious person, made uniquely in God's image. And each person has a unique story. Now, people who here in Macedonia as yet do not know Christ. Behind every number is someone who has a story, and that story as yet does not know Jesus Christ. Those who are lost, who as yet do not know how to be found. Those who are guilty, who don't know they can be forgiven and set free. Those who are enemies of God, not realising they can be friends with God through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, interestingly at this point, the Apostle Paul, Silas and Timothy, because that's the cohort, on this second missionary trip, are now joined by Luke. Because you'll notice in the text, Luke, who's been writing Luke and Acts, now goes into the we. So he says, we did this and we did that. So he becomes now a first-hand eyewitness to what takes place. And the particular three people we meet here, or rather there are three particular people we meet, each with their own 
distinction and uh, difference and each with their own unique story. And I tell you, they have their own story and not one of them knows that they're lost. Uh, the first woman we meet uh, who needs to be saved is, of course, Lydia. And, uh, and let's pick up the story of her, of her in verse 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman, uh, a woman who feared God. Uh, she was clearly successful, but still needed to be saved. A non-Jew who worshipped the God of the Jews. So she was on the right track. But from the moment Jesus entered into our world, everyone had to realise that you couldn't worship the God of Israel without worshipping his son. To be friends with God now requires being friends with Jesus. And God did what this capable woman couldn't do. And that is, he opened her heart. You see, before they got baptised, they needed to believe. Before they believed, they needed to hear the message. Before they could receive the message, they had to have their hearts open. And that lovely verse, what does it say? The Lord opened her heart to respond to, the, to Paul's message. It is a work of God. And I've seen lots of people one for Jesus over the years, have we not all? And every one of them, no matter what involvement we've had, every one of them has been the result of God opening human hearts for Jesus, for the message. What God did to Lydia, he, did, he can do for anyone. And he is, pure and simply, and I love this phrase, he is the Lord of the heart. And what that means is, you're not given permission to give up on anyone. Like, that is off limits. Because no one is, I mean, you only have to think of Saul, who becomes Paul, the worst of sinners. Uh, don't give up on anyone. God can open the heart of anyone to receive the message of Jesus Christ. The person who resists Jesus today can be the very same person who believes in Jesus tomorrow. The person who says no to your offer of uh, Jesus Christ today may well be the same person who can say yes tomorrow. So what it does is it keeps us on our knees interceding as priests of God on behalf of the rest of the world. And what a privilege that is. And sure, sometimes that involves an engagement with prayer that goes on for 50 years. I remember praying for 40 years for one person until they finally walked into the building. As a born-again believer, I couldn't believe my eyes. Well, God had done more than I could ever ask or imagine. You know, a few weeks ago, we heard the story of uh, Dan and Maria Brennan, how Maria got saved 25 years ago, and she had been praying for her husband for 25 years, almost giving up. And then earlier this year, he said yes to Christ, because it was at that point God had opened his heart. He'd been dating Jesus for a long time. He never quite got to the altar and said, I do. God can save a successful woman like Lydia. God can save an exploited young woman like this slave, unnamed slave girl. And she's the second person. Paul kept running into this slave girl who is demon-possessed and has somehow been given supernaturally, but not, not in the positive supernatural, demonically, um, uh, the ability to read at least some features of the future, eh? Um, or at least claim to, let's say that. In verse 16, Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She entered a great deal. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. You can see why she was in a position to make money for them. Whether she was actually effective at it, at it or not is another question. But she clearly had persuaded others she had the ability to do it. I mean, who doesn't want to bet on a certainty? This is a skill worth having. If you could know the future, is it not? 
Uh, imagine knowing which shares are going to go up in the next six months and which shares are going to go down. Um, but she not only has the claim gift of knowing the future, or at least certain elements of it, she has the ability to work out that Paul indeed, along with Silas, are men who know the way of salvation. And that one she got bang on right. Verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. The unclean spirit Unclean spirits knew Jesus was the son of the Most High God. Remember that through the Gospels? They kept identifying in a way that the disciples couldn't pick it up. The son of the Most High God. They kept nailing him and, and identifying him exactly. Here, the demonic spirits are identifying Paul and Silas as servants of the Most High God and that they have access to the way of salvation. You know, people pay big money to access information from futurists and what's called um, horizon scanners. I didn't know they existed until uh, uh, yesterday, but anyway. Uh, and uh, they basically forecast and help you with future trends, you know, for business purposes and so forth. Because if only we knew the future, our lives would be so much better. And yet, isn't it interesting? There's just no interest when it comes to the future day of judgment. I mean, that information is free of charge. That information is the most important thing that is that, that every human needs to know. And yet... People are happy to pay millions for something uh, where someone can predict a trend two years down the track, which is most likely not to take place. Well, Paul might have ignored this slave girl, but it's interesting that uh, because she's kind of stalking him and getting in the way of his mission, he has to deal with it. Verse 18. She kept this up, the slave girl that is, uh, constantly announcing who they were, you know, servants of the Most High God. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, I've done lots of things when I've been annoyed, let me tell you, but I've never cast out a demon. <laughs> not in that context. God and not Satan are authorized to bear witness to the gospel. <laughs> That's the point there. And uh, these pimps who... Uh, exploited this girl as a spiritual prostitute because function that's what it was not a sexual prostitute but a spiritual prostitute now are furious that their source of income has been stealing from her ability to in some way anticipate the future for people that's gone because the demon is gone now don't can i just say side point satan is not omniscient he doesn't know everything so i just need to make that very clear he's not god but nevertheless in verse 20 we read how they turn on paul they brought, sorry, they, that is the, um, the owners of the slave girl, they brought them, Paul and Silas, before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, bit of racism there, and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace. They pile one law upon another uh, before an angry crowd and a fairly docile, malleable magistrate, all fueled by greed and a bit of racism. The magistrates had Paul and Silas. Now notice this. Notice the verbs that are used. They had them stripped, beaten, severely flogged, uh, in public, chained, and imprisoned. Wow. That is both violent and humiliating. All because they set free this young girl from, the, from enslavement to Satan. Well, the next day, the magistrates either, well, must have had their fun or thought that that was enough of the matter and uh, uh, offered to release Silas and Paul through the jailer. 
And you know, at that moment, you want to say, praise the Lord. You know, I'm sure they were praying for it and it, and it took place. But the, so the jailer comes in and says to Paul and Silas, go in peace, you're free. And Paul says, not so quickly, not so quickly. He knew this beating and imprisonment was illegal. He was a Roman citizen. Philippi was a Roman colony. As a Roman citizen, he had legal rights to protect him. These magistrates did not follow due process that was accorded to a uh, citizen of Rome. Now, we rightly are taught by our Lord Jesus to turn the other cheek. But that doesn't actually mean you function as a doormat and it can be misread. And we all know how Jesus responded to the soldier who slapped him on the face. He just, uh, he looked him in the eye and said, if I did something wrong, tell me what it is. But if I didn't, why did you slap me? He, he confronted the injustice head on without retaliating. Here it's interesting that Paul is actually going to hold the magistrates to task. They're terrified. They know they've crossed the line and that Rome's going to dump a whole lot of judgment on them uh, and, and absolutely terrified. And they're the ones now crying out for mercy. And Paul will show mercy because he won't take it any further. But I think the point was made by Paul because I don't think he was just thinking about himself. And that is the next time Christians are treated badly in Philippi, these, might, these magistrates might take a second thought about how they treat them and not bypass due process. And this is a place where Christians are, are, are reminded that they too can take up legal avenues to address injustices. And it kind of varies from culture to culture. And we need to recognise that. Uh, we had an assistant minute. You know, the, the law in our particular state in New South Wales uh, means that every school needs to at least provide or have the opportunity to provide, I think, an hour's worth or half an hour's worth of scripture teaching. It's one of those rare things that we're still blessed with in our particular state that allows us to preach Christ in schools around the state. Well, you get a principal, understandably, they're not Christian, they're busy, it's a pain in the neck to organise a scripture class. And uh, I, you know, I, I'm kind of, you know, walking gently, you know, not wanting to sort of push too hard. But I had an assistant minister, and I'm going to name him Ray Vasallo. He was outstanding because he got saved in school in scripture teaching. And that's why I think he particularly felt it. And uh, he would hold very respectfully, but he would hold the principal accountable to the law of the land and say, you know, the law, it requires that we, we have access to the students of those who want to come for whatever time it was each week. And he held his ground. And because of that, we still have scripture teaching in our school. So I thank God for that dear brother. No, no, it's really important that we operate within the bounds of the law and uh, take whatever uh, opportunities to hold our ground when we need to. Okay, well, the third person needing to be saved is this unnamed jailer. And I love this guy. Um, in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, the jailer may have noticed that how did Paul and Silas, who were savagely beaten and humiliated, shackled and crushed by the, by the uh, violence that they were under, what were they doing as they were placed in the heart of the prison? At midnight, when you think they were entitled at least a little bit to issue out curses and threats and, uh, and so forth, what were they doing? They were heard to be joyfully praising God in song and in prayer. Wow. I think it's because when you're saved from the worst of all sufferings, hell, it allows you to live with the injustices of this world that much easier, that much lighter, or it should. Because as Paul says to the church at Philippi in chapter 4 of his letter to them years later, 
you know, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. So it's the peace of God and not the jailer that's been standing guard on these two men as they're in jail. That is standing guard over their hearts and minds that are being beaten and broken, knowing that the peace of God, that they're right with God, that God is for them. And what an extraordinary challenge. I think of where they're at and what they've experienced and what comes out of that prison cell is so glorified to God. Well, God ends up uh, uh, providing a violent earthquake and, and it results in the fact that the, uh, the doors are swung open and the jailer comes in and he's almost certain that the, the prisoners have all escaped and, and he assumes it, right? He doesn't actually check the evidence and he's interesting, his first instinct is to attempt suicide. It's amazing because he knows he's going to be dead by the next day because the Roman authorities will not allow a jailer to have men escape under his watch. But Paul, in his kindness, quickly shouts out to the jailer, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Now, that's twice in this scene Paul could have escaped uh, in this context. Paul could have escaped and uh, twice we're told he doesn't. The jailer who is saved now from suicide and self-harm now wants to be saved from ultimate judgment. Look what he says, verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He must have been listening to them. I mean, that's not the question you would ask. He must have been listening to their, their speaking and their, and their praising. On the edge of taking his own life, they asked the most important question that has ever been asked. What must I do to be saved? And then they receive the most important answer that's ever been given. That's in verse 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. You know, because behind every number is a person. And behind every person is a story of someone needing to be saved. We all need to be saved, don't we? And the answer is always the same. The answer is always the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus, trust in him. Because he is Lord, you need to submit to him. But because he is your saviour, you need to surrender to him, to rely on him and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. And what's at stake is not just your eternity, but actually the eternity of your family. Um, you notice this, the promise of salvation is for you and your household. That's said to Lydia and that's said to the Philippian jailer. It's quite distinct in this chapter. The promise of salvation is actually for them and for their family and all who believe in the Lord Jesus. I mean, and how many times have you seen it? How many times have I seen it? Someone becomes a Christian and before you know it, some member of their family has been, become saved. Uh, I, I, you know, I, again, we've seen so many people one for Christ and uh, you, you, you see one person, it could be a child, it could be a, a husband, it could be a wife, and then that person, gets, uh, that person gets saved and then a sibling, a parent comes to Christ and then a cousin and then a brother-in-law. And, and sometimes, especially in the early days of MBM, I would stand back and watch these lines of conversions that follow family lines uh, through various uh, ethnic groups. It's been quite beautiful to watch and all of it, of course, the work of God. There is something, though, powerful. There's something very powerful about the nature of the language. What must they do to be saved? Do you notice that? Um, it betrays the seriousness of the problem. What must they do to be saved? You see, human beings are not just lost and lonely, even though that's true. It's not just that we've got a hole in our heart and only Jesus can fill it, even though it's true. It's not just that we live in a world of chaos and we're desperate for meaning and purpose which of course is really true. 
No, no. The real problem is we're on a roller coaster to the place of utter darkness. And God in his kindness has put forward his son who stepped in, put up his hand and said, here I am to do your will, O Lord. I'll take their place so that they don't have to. And I'll do it at the cross. You see, Christianity is fundamentally a rescue religion. Before it's anything else, it's a rescue religion. If you miss that, you've missed it all. You've misunderstood your plight and who Jesus is. You will name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. It's buried in the name Jesus. Jesus. And it's a touch more humbling to say, is it not, I need to be saved than to say, I've decided to follow Jesus. Now, both are true. And, that, and, and I don't want to disparage either one of them, but there's something a touch more humbling. Your posture when you say, I need to be saved, is slightly different. It's a profound admission of how desperate and dependent you are on your rescuer. Let me quote the words of a great one in a song that he wrote, Robert Zimmerman. Nobody to rescue me, nobody would dare. I was going down for the last time. By his mercy, I've been spared. Not by works, but by faith in him who calls. For so long I've been hindered, for so long I've been stalled, but I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. I've been saved. I love that line. Every time I hear it, every time I sing it to myself, I, it always brings me to tears. Nobody to rescue me. Nobody would dare. I was going down for the last time. By his mercy, I've been spared. We can't save ourselves, friends. <laughs> And until we come to that reality, we'll never fall on our knees and cry out for salvation. I recently met again a former detective sergeant uh, who was in the police rescue, Gary Raymond. One of our dear brothers, uh, Michael Kennedy, reintroduced me to him. I haven't seen him for a long time. And he, he spoke at one of our events years ago and he told the story as a member of the police rescue. He was there at all the big disasters in our city. Uh, the Threadbow disaster, the Granville train disaster. And again and again, he had these amazing stories of being there with people who were pinned under this train and and, uh, and, and, these, and these blocks of concrete or underwater when the tide was rising and, and, you know, just trying to keep them alive and motivated and then finally rescued. You know, he was the saviour. Uh, and then he tells the, disaster, tells the story of how he himself experienced his own personal disaster, how his, how his uh, uh, relationship with alcohol had, had, had uh, well, he'd lost control over it and become an alcoholic. Uh, and then his wife had left, never to return. And uh, he was just completely crushed. And he was laying on his bed one day and he looked up and there was his police rescue uniform. And he looked up at it and, and, and with tears in his eyes said, who rescues the rescuers? And then he remembered. He remembered what his Sunday school teachers said. That's why you always got to take your kids to to church so that they'd be fed of the word of God because you never know when it's going to kick in. And you remember what his Sunday school teacher said. What must I do to be saved? You need to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that night he gave his life to Christ. And he wasn't saved from his alcoholism. Just, sorry, just his alcoholism. He wasn't saved from a broken heart and a broken marriage. He was definitively saved from meeting God unforgiven, the worst of all nightmares. And for that, he was truly transformed and never the same. Who rescues the rescuers? I'll never forget that line. It just spoke, so spoke to my heart. Well, friends, um, it is time that perhaps you ask the same question, if you haven't already. What must I do to be saved? And not just for your sake, but for the sake of your loved ones, those in your own household. 
Someone, you know, just like, oh, can I say, the same question, what must I do to be saved, has been asked consistently over the last 2,000 years. And it's received consistently the same answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And can I say, someone just like you has asked the question, I don't know if you realise it, someone with your temperament, someone from your culture, someone from your faith, someone from your country, someone who has the same job as you, someone who likes the same kind of music as you, someone who follows the same sports team, someone who likes the same artwork, whatever. There is someone just like you who's asked that question and found the answer. This is why the church is filled with so many different kinds of people. Why? Because everyone needs to be saved. It's not like a certain demographic need to be saved. We saw that with the three people, you know, a a retired soldier who was, you know, doing some, uh, uh, in his retirement, some prison work, um, a slave girl who was exploited, and a successful business God-fearing woman. No, no, it's any, any kind of demographic. And that's why the church is so beautifully filled with so many different kinds of people. You know, God so loved those 7.9 billion people on the face of this world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life. But it's equally true that God so loved you that he gave his one and only son, that if you would believe in him, you would be saved, may not perish and have everlasting life. Friends, because behind every number is a person, and that person has a need for salvation, and that person is you. So can I invite you to pray this prayer with me as you take the hand of Jesus and cry out for salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you as I am, a rebel needing to be rescued. I need you, Lord Jesus, to save me from my Christless eternity, a Christless eternity that I deserve. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing the punishment that my sins deserve at the cross. Because you are the Lord Jesus, I submit to you. Because you are my Saviour, I entrust myself to you. And I thank you for the certain promise that I am saved in Jesus' name. And it's in Jesus' powerful name that I pray. Amen.